Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. Omnia Gallia tres partes divisus est. So begins what we now call Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic Wars. For the last 300 years or so, those words have been the introduction to Latin for tens of thousands of students, since th- and the Gallic Wars have long since become synonymous with simplicity and clarity in Latin style. But what else are Caesar's commentaries? Could they even be considered history? And was Caesar himself a great historian? With me to discuss these and a few other questions is Adrian Goldsworthy. A native of South Wales, Dr. Goldsworthy's doctoral thesis was on the Roman army as a fighting force. Since then, he has written numerous histories of the ancient world, including Caesar, Life of a Colossus, and most recently, Augustus, first emperor of Rome. And if that wasn't enough, he has, in the last six years, begun a series of novels set in the Napoleonic Wars, and, as I've just learned, finished a first of three novels set in ancient Rome. So, Adrian, thank you for joining us. Nice to be invited. So, um, 58 BC is when the events in the that Caesar describes in the commentaries kick off. So, let's set a little background. Um, what's Caesar's age, status, position in 58 BC? Caesar's coming up to his 42nd birthday in July of 58. He's at the height or the the pinnacle of his political career, as the Romans would expect. He's been consul in 59, which is one of the two senior magistrates in the Roman Republic. He's done it as soon as he's old enough to qualify for the office. You had to be minimum age. He's from an aristocratic family that goes back to the year dot, but hasn't done much for generations. So he's restoring the family name. So he's had lots of success, but surrounded with controversy. On the one hand, he's hugely in debt. He has one of those people who likes advertising himself. So he spent money to do that. He decided decades after his father had died to stage gladiatorial games commemorating his his father, because that was the only time you could celebrate those sorts of games at this period. Spends lots of money, has the gladiators wearing silver armor or silver decoration on the armor. Um, Spends money he hasn't got. He borrows money to buy fame, buy popularity, which means that all his creditors are gambling on the fact that he'll keep on succeeding and get to the point where suddenly he'll have enough cash to pay them back. So his, you know, just a few years before when he was standing for the Pontifex Maximus, the highest priesthood in Rome, he's supposed to have said to his mother before going off to the election, I'll either come home a victor or I'm not coming home. You know, he's got, he's someone whose career is teetering on the brink that um, although he's been spectacularly successful, the risk of failure is always there because of these debts, because of the risks he's taken. So he needs to get out of debt, but what, what sort of future is he going to have at 42? after having been consul i mean what what's his his that's the cursus honorum is that the correct phrase that's been sort of run uh what's left to do other than get out of debt get out of debt but there's also glory the big thing you wanted the consulship gave you the chance it's it's not just a civilian post it's a military post after your consulship you'll want to go to a big um command in the provinces 
and you'll want to fight a war against the enemy. That gives you glory of defeating an enemy of the Roman people and all the profits that glory brings. So you've got the plunder from defeating the enemy, but also the captives. Um, one source claims that Caesar enslaved a million people during the campaigns in Gaul. So, you know, all of those sales of those individuals, a share of that goes to him. Um, so he wants to pay off his debts and become wealthy, but he wants to establish himself as one of the the inner elite that guides the Roman Republic. So you've got to be not just a consul, but a distinguished one. And then you fight a big war, you celebrate a triumph, that great ceremonial procession through the center of Rome. That then, all the insignia, all the prestige of that means that you are someone whose opinion needs to be sought when there is any serious debate in the Senate. But also, 10 years have to elapse before another consulship. But, you know, he's still going to be young enough to do that in reasonable expectation he'll be around. So his plan was to come back from Gaul after 10 years and go straight into another consulship and then maybe another command, more glory. We don't quite know because obviously things didn't work out the way he planned. Right. So what's the status of the Roman Republic in 58 BC? It's in trouble. I mean, on the one hand, it's the biggest power in the Mediterranean world. It doesn't yet directly rule all of the lands around the Mediterranean, but it's either a province or an ally. There is no competitor, no rival with anything like the power of the Roman Republic. There's no one who could destroy the Republic. Um, the Parthians, they've only just sort of contacted in the last generation. They're big, they're strong, but they're really their heartlands, Monday around Iraq. It's a long way away. They're never going to turn up in Italy, whereas the Romans can and do march into the Parthian homeland. Mm -hmm. So Rome's very successful. Rome's very strong. Rome's very wealthy. Rome is starting to turn into the magnificent monumental city that we're more familiar with from being quite backward compared to a lot of, say, Greek cities like Athens. But politically, it's got problems because the old system has struggled and the idea of two consuls every year, equal power, then they go off to a province for a year, then they come back home, doesn't necessarily allow you to deal with serious problems. There has also become a sort of level of inertia at the heart of government in that senators are more concerned with not letting their rivals get too much prestige and credit by solving a problem. They prefer the problem to continue. So they're not dealing with the huge unemployment in Rome itself. Um, and they resist during Caesar's consulship. He has this plan to distribute public land, which is owned by the state, give it to some of these people who've got families, so sets them up as farmers. They can then start paying taxes, contributing to the, the state rather than being a drain and being um, have to be given free grain and all this sort of thing. Um, but people oppose it not because they think it's a bad idea, but because they don't want Caesar to get the credit. Mm -hmm. But worst of all is a level of violence that's now become normal in Roman politics. Since 88 BC, when um, during the first civil war, Sulla marched his legions on Rome and eventually after two more occupations of Rome by violence, made himself dictator, um, someone without uh, any limit to his power, without any, um, he eventually resigned from it, but he didn't have to. He could have kept that office as long as he wanted, killed his opponents, um, stripped them of their property. That once you've crossed that bridge, it's very difficult to go back. And there are when Sulla resigns, there's an attempted coup within months. You, you get the big slave rebellion of Spartacus in the 70s. You get more attempted coups in the 60s. You get regular political violence, rioting, intimidation, even murder at elections in the 50s. Um, particularly it gets much worse after Caesar goes off to Gaul. So you've got this political system that isn't working and where every politician knows that 
his opponents could resort to violence. They might well. So there's always that fear that if, if I wait too late before I do that, then I'm going to get caught out. I'm the one who's going to die. So you have a, a democracy that's in a real crisis and no one sees any way out of this. Hmm. So uh, briefly, uh, what was the st- situation in Gaul in 58? Uh, as I understand it, the uh, Rome occupies has two provinces, uh, which are now the southernmost part of France. Um, to in order to control a road to Spain, which had been um, had been occupied by Rome, pro- made provinces of Rome long before Gaul was. Is that right? Yes, it's it's modern day Provence. That's where the, the okay. name comes from in France. Was the Roman province? You know, it uh-huh. became a province. Um, beyond that, you've got lots of different. We tend to call them tribes. Caesar will refer to them as civitates. Um, tribes, some people argue with, has all sorts of other baggage you don't want. They're proto-states in some cases, but some of them are a lot looser. Some of them have been monarchies fairly recently. They're now turning to elected magistrates, but every now and again there's a civil war and you get a king again. Um, the tribes are, although culturally quite similar, you have the obviously the three parts into which Gaul is divided that Caesar emphasizes. That does seem to have been a reality, um, though it's probably divided into even more parts than that as well. It's, it's more complicated again. Uh, but, the, you know, to a fair extent, that holds true. You've got the influence. They've got to the south of them this huge market of the Mediterranean world. Vast quantities of goods, particularly um, wine, we can we can trace because of the amphorae, the the um, the jars in which it was contained. They they don't they don't decay naturally. So you find the fragments of them, particularly in the rivers Rhone and so. And there are tens of thousands of these things that that keep on turning up and it again it's it's one estimate has is about 40 million amphorae going up during the first century bc so up those rivers just to emphasize people are shipping wine into france that's uh, yeah it wasn't exactly. it wasn't illegal then or right really the the gauls aren't really growing it right they're, they're, no. they're still beer drinkers at this stage mm-hmm. um, much like most of northern europe so but they, there is this great desire for wine Partly as a luxury good, it, it's it's something that the aristocracy likes to show off their wealth, their sophistication. Feasting is a big thing in many of these societies. You you entertain your warriors, your chieftains at a big celebration, and a lot of the other stuff that's going up is is the sort of metalwork um, or fine vessels, bowls, cups, this sort of thing, cauldrons, to as part of this ceremonial feasting. Um, but obviously. It's great if you're one of the tribes that's on this trade route. You can levy tolls on the, the goods that are going up. You get best access to goods. So there's this increases the already fairly common violence between tribes and that they're fighting over control of the main trade routes because it's very profitable. And not just tribes fighting tribes, but individual leaders within the tribes realize if I can get this, then this will make me a much more important man within my people. Um, so Gaul is in many ways less stable perhaps than it has been because of the influence of this big market and these big producers uh, further south. So you've already, before Caesar arrived, you get interventions by Germanic war leaders like Ariovistus, one of the peoples he fights. You know, People are looking for something to tip the balance. They're in a conflict with their neighbors, so how do I win? If I'm doing badly, how do I get some help um, to call in that will allow me to prevail rather than them? So Gaul is unsettled. Um, it's the, it's a it basically it's it's begun to in to move into a state of tumult, um, which then it gives Caesar certain opportunities. As a famous American politician said, he seen his opportunity and he taken his chance, um, and that's what Caesar does. Uh, 
the instrument that he uses, the Roman army, has undergone a series of well, real revolution in the 50 years prior to the Gallic Wars. Um, what is the Roman army like in 58 BC? It's becoming a professional force, um, but it's still in a stage of transition, and we actually know less about it than we'd like to. Um, but so we, there is a tendency to assume it becomes this um, professional force under Augustus and afterwards the, the first emperor sees his great nephew when soldiers will serve for 25 years you know they are real long term long service hardened professionals it's not quite there yet but they do seem to be volunteers they're mainly recruited from the very poor the people who can't get other work um, or the, as well as some of the, the kids who were bored on the farms back home um, they don't serve as long but they are more likely to fight. Um, Caesar talks about a legion that he's recruited at the start of the Gallic Wars, has fought all the way through these seven or eight campaigns. He still doesn't quite consider them veterans compared to some of the units he had before. Um, and so you get the impression of this real sort of toughening process. Um, they're led by centurions um, who are singled out for particular praise by Caesar repeatedly. But there's an old idea, particularly in Britain, that they were the sort of sergeant majors of the Roman army. It's complete nonsense. These are officers. They very few, if any, actually served in the ranks. They mostly are people of considerable education because they had to be. Um, the job required a lot of administration as well. Mm -hmm. um, and their behavior is less of a sort of stable, um, you know, reassuring the sergeant who steadies the men. It's more like the young officer, the young lieutenant who's sort of charging to the front and um, trying to inspire everybody, but a lot of them get killed mm -hmm. as a result. The, the casualty rate among centurions is much higher than amongst the ordinary soldiers because they lead from the front. What uh, advantage does the Roman army have over its opponents in 58 BC? Well, there are two things, really. One is far more important. That's the organization, the command structure, the opportunity to train. One thing that's emphasized less so in Caesar's own account, but all the other um, sources about him, was how hard he trained his soldiers. The Romans are professionals. They are full-time soldiers. That's all that they do. And the army trains as legions, as units. They train under the officers that are going to lead them in battle. So you have that practice, whereas you're essentially fighting Gallic, German, British armies later on that are amateurs, where maybe there are a few hundred men or at most thousand or two led by the um the main leaders the main chieftains who are professionals semi-professionals more or less full-time warriors and war is all that they do but they're very much a minority most of the army consists of everybody who can equip himself and is willing to turn up and fight so they're a lot less disciplined there's a different emphasis on personal display um they can't do anything too clever. There's an interesting case in um, the campaign against the Belgic tribes where Caesar adopts a strong defensive position and so do the Gauls. Neither side wants to be at a disadvantage and fight. After two weeks, the Gauls simply run out of food and their army just starts walking home. Caesar then pursues them, inflicts quite serious losses on them as they're going away. Caesar's army has an organized system of logistics. You know, supply is an important thing. He talks about it nearly all the time, securing enough grain for the troops, securing enough basic provisions. The Gauls don't have that sort of structure. They try to create one in the later campaigns in 52 BC, but it's a struggle. This is something you can't just invent from nothing, whereas the Romans have generation after generation of experience doing this sort of thing. So it's a, so it's a culture of soldiers versus a culture of warriors. and Very much so. so soldiers always win. 
Mm. Um, in the end. <laughs> in the long run. Yeah, exactly. Not always on the day, but in the long run. Yeah, in the long run. Um, so let's go, let's uh, charge through a, a, a five minutes on the synopsis of what happens during in, in the Gallic Wars. Those things that uh, Caesar reviews in the commentaries, which are, I, I, I as you've uh, said in your biography of Caesar and others will say this is what we know of the Gallic Wars is what Caesar writes other than what we might find through archaeology that's correct uh, other maybe, than maybe so, 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 go on sorry there are one or two fragments from outside that might be independent of Caesar but mm-hmm. it's very very small by comparison maybe a, a reference from Cicero in his letters or something like that there's a few bits from Cicero there are a few fragments in Dio that who's writing 250 years later but they don't those stories don't appear to go back to Caesar the odd bit in Pliny as well but it, it's very very small and it doesn't change anything major so it begins with the Helveti uh, and Caesar racing back to the border yeah, again, it's very much this seizing an opportunity. Caesar had concentrated his troops not to go north of the Alps into Gaul, but to go east into the Balkans, because Illyricum was also part of his province. However, the Helvetii decide to migrate. There'd been a fear about this a couple of years ago. We know that from Cicero. The Romans thought the problem had gone away. It hadn't. So the Helvetii arrive suddenly. Caesar reacts, shifts all his forces across the north of the Alps, to um, confronts the Helvetii, when they, instead of when he won't let them through his province, they instead go around through allied territory. Caesar answers appeals from the allies of the Roman people for protection against the Helvetii who are plundering their lands. So responds, chases after the Helvetii, draws them into battle, defeats them. And from then on, it's opportunity after opportunity that sucks him or leads him further and further into Gaul. So what's the next up? What's the next after um, the Helvetii? Uh, the next one is Ariovistus, this Germanic war leader who's been invited in by one tribe, the Sequani, to fight against their rivals, the Aizui, in one of these big battles over the trade routes. Mm-hmm. The um, Ariovistus help them to win, but then demands a lot more and starts to take over. So Caesar uses this as an excuse. Germans are too close to our frontier of our province. They're harassing our allies. Both of the tribes involved are allies of the Roman people. And they hadn't stopped them going to war with each other, and Romans hadn't been bothered before. But when Caesar was born at the end of the second century BC, a big migration by Germanic tribes had threatened Italy, spilled across the Alps, defeated half a dozen Roman armies before they were finally beaten. So there's, Caesar works on this old fear of these frightening northern barbarians that are even wilder, even more barbarian than the Gauls, getting too close and they'll want to come south. They'll want all the good things that we've got in our country. So he fights Ariovistus, defeats him. The next year, 57, the Belgic tribes, one or two of them appeal, um, uh, or at least one of his allies appeals and says they're being threatened by the Belgic tribes. Caesar intervenes to support yet another ally. So he goes further and further afield. He makes new allies who then complain about their neighbors, and Caesar goes and fights their neighbors. Um, and it expands that way. The, the, the following year, 56, he'll push up to Brittany, to the Atlantic coast. So within three years, his armies have reached the English Channel and the Atlantic in the west and the Rhine in the east. Yeah, he's, it's extraordinary how fast these uh, events go on. And so what's the overall period that's being described in the commentaries? He, Caesar wrote about the first seven years. Each book is a one individual campaign. So that's from 58 through to the end of 52. Later on, after his death, one of his commanders wrote an extra book, an eighth book that's always added on to the, um, the corpus that describes the last two years. So... Um, 
till 50 BC. So in the first two to three years, um, the, his legion, Caesar and his legions have gone back and forth across Gaul. Um, and the next, what are the next years spent in doing? Um, mopping up behind him, dealing with revolts? It's going even further. I mean, there is some of that, but in 55 and 54, he'll twice raid Britain. Mm-hmm. So he'll build a fleet on the, um, the Channel Coast and he'll go to Britain. His pretext is that the Britons have sometimes aided some of the Gallic tribes fighting against him. But I mean, it's, it's fairly tenuous, but he's presenting this as this is for the good of the Roman people. And the reaction in Rome was quite staggering. They award more days of public thanksgiving for Caesar's um, expedition to Britain than, um, than any other Roman victory in history. So this is even beating Hannibal. This is all the great things Pompey has done. And yet he doesn't stay there. He doesn't achieve much. Cicero writes rather sort of disappointedly that, oh, we're not going to get much money from there. They don't seem very wealthy. And there might be slaves, but I can't see any of them that will be, you know, literate or good as clerks or anything like that. They'll just be sort of cheap labor. Um, So it achieves little, but it's the excitement is probably the moon landing is about the only thing that matches it as one of these because it's Britain's not quite in the real world. You know, the Romans and Greeks know of these three great continents, and Britain is there. Should It's somewhere in the, the encircling sea that they think sounds the rest, that surrounds the, all the, these continents. It's sort of on the edges of reality. Mm-hmm. So to go there, to take the Roman legions there, plant the flag there, even if you don't stay, is something that even people who don't like Caesar get terribly excited about. So by the conclusion of his campaigns, um, you, is he out of debt? Yes, he's he's beca- he's gone from being one of the biggest debtors in the Roman world to one of the wealthiest men in the Roman world. And that's through the chiefly a percentage of the sale of slaves. Uh, a lot of it's slaves. A lot of it's straightforward plunder. One suspects there's also um, taking a cut of um, the various people who win contracts who are opening up new trade routes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it is it's mentioned by another source, not by Caesar, that he was not bothered by any religious taboo. He used to just plunder the temples when he found them and take all the gold from those uh, because they weren't Roman gods. So who cares? Yeah. Uh, whether that's true or not, we don't know. Caesar never mentions it. But, you know, a, a million slaves is a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, that figure might well be pretty close to, to right. They certainly would have had account because, again, all of this will have been recorded in account books. Mm-hmm. Um, what are two or three passages that you find most notable in the commentaries, uh, sort of uh, classically Caesar-esque or for some other reason? I think one in book two, uh, describing a battle in 57 BC at the River Sabis, he calls it, which might be the River Sombra, might not be, but doesn't really matter for our purpose. But it's mm-hmm. it's one of the most frequently quoted sort of battle descriptions of Caesar. And this is when his men are in trouble. They've been surprised. They've been setting up camp by the river when the the Belgic tribes that have been waiting in woodland, the other side of the valley, storm across and catch the legions, not properly formed up, not properly prepared. Mm -hmm. And Caesar describes how he rides from one flank to the other, where he sees the crisis of the battle. And then he grabs a shield from one of the men at the rear because he hasn't brought his own. It's one of those few instances where he provides a little bit of detail Mm -hmm. about what he's doing and then pushes into the front ranks and he starts to encourage the centurions by name, calling out to them individually and the soldiers in general. He starts giving orders. Um, It's a very dramatic passage. The fascinating thing for me is what it doesn't say, because it's very often quoted as talking about how, you know, when the chips were down, Caesar would push into the front rank and he'd fight alongside his men. Mm -hmm. If you read what Caesar actually says, there are no descriptions of 
great hairy gauls coming through the mist and him fighting them hand to hand and cutting them down. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't mention fighting at all for him personally. It's all about being a commander. It's taking charge. It's encouraging. It's giving orders. Now, this is a big contrast to his great rival, Pompey, who couldn't write his own narrative of his campaigns, but took historians with him on campaign. And there are quite a few stories about Pompey charging spear in hand at the head of cavalry and hacking down enemy leaders, this sort of thing. So there there was that sort of Alexander the Great literature of personal heroism. Caesar doesn't do that. And he leaves it entirely to the reader's imagination. And what strikes me is how many modern commentators assume that he is actually doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But in a sense, if you allow people to imagine the most heroic thing they can think of, that's more powerful than saying, I did this, I did that, and, you know, aren't I great? Um, it does reveal a lot of the, the technique of how he clearly presents a very favorable view of himself, but he does it in an understated way. It's this sort of almost false modesty, you know. I yeah, I, I, I note in Book 224, I've got it in front of uh, here, um, it, he drops the uh, third person for yes. a, a little bit and speaks of I. Mm. Again, which is one of those few occasions. And it, it's it is a, it's very, and in the Latin, it, it's very quick, it's very exciting. Yeah. Um, but even even in the translations, it, it's dramatic stuff. It is, it is. Um, um, and I think it, it's one of the, um, I was a very bad Latin student, but it's one of the two uh, times that I really got a thrill out mm. of that you you got you began to feel like you're inside the language the the aggressiveness of the verb yeah. placement and all the rest of that stuff you began to understand you know oh this is how Romans think or talk when they went to, thing, to, to imagine the Romans reading and hearing yeah it. yeah exactly this, you just would have been stirred so much this is real sort of you know blockbuster hero type thing. yeah right <laughs> understated you know because in the end the heroes are the Roman soldiers who rally and turn around there's a the centurion who collapses because of his wounds but has been trying to fight on mm-hmm. you know there, there's not there is the big hero but there's this supporting cast that are coming up and uh, it's always nostri our men mm-hmm. you know, that, that that immediacy that um not so many other historians use in the roman period and of course is, is the opposite of journalism today that tends to be this sort of dispassionate thing mm-hmm. um any other passages that uh, you care to mention um, I like from earlier on the, his description of his meetings in book one with the German leader Ariovistus uh, are quite fascinating because he gives a succession of nearly all um, in indirect speech, but of the different exchanges of letters they had. And then finally, the meeting he has with the Germanic leader. And it's it's very rare to get that sort of detail of an encounter between a representative of Rome and a foreign leader. Uh, but it's also, again, it's one of those things that, that that emphasizes to us how looking with a modern eye, you often miss what, what the, the Roman reaction, because at one point, Ariovistus complains and says, well, you know, why are you, are you making a fuss about this? Why are you intervening in what he calls my province? And he puts himself on a par with Caesar, says, I've conquered this area by, you know, the strength of my own arm, by my army, and it's a long way away from your province. Why are you coming here and telling me what to do? Mm-hmm. Which sounds quite reasonable until you think like a Roman, and when it becomes immediately the arrogance of a barbarian who has to be humble. You know, this is a dangerous enemy who's nearby. Yeah. Um, so I, I quite like that because again, it's it's not the most dramatic, but it's quite interesting. Yeah. In book. In, sorry. To uh, and to add to that, in book one forty four, uh, my translation has Ariovistus made a curt reply to Caesar's demands, but then spoke long and loudly of his own excellence. 
Yes, exactly. And it's there is you can understand the fellow being confused because only the year before in 59 BC, something that, that Caesar does mention because he couldn't hide. Caesar in the Senate at Rome has proposed that Ariovistus be named a, a king and friend of the Roman people. You know, it's this sort of diplomatic recognition. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, less than a year later, he's turned up with an army threatening him. So, you know, there, you could you can sense the man's bafflement um, as to why this is going on. But also it's. The way Caesar presents it is clear to it that to his Roman audience, this would all be entirely reasonable that he should intervene for the good of Rome's allies, and that Ariovistus is dangerous. He's arrogant. Um, he's not showing the proper humility of someone who doesn't realise that he is inferior to Rome. So we've talked. We've just talked in, in both of those examples a, a little bit about Caesar's. Uh, well, it's almost his meta style, his delicate touch that he has in in preparing these uh, these compositions. What's the um Explain, if you would, how something gets published, quote unquote, in 58 BC in in the Roman Republic. It's a very expensive business, and the big thing we have to remember is, of course, this is before printing presses. So, owning a book, physical copy of a book, was something that only the wealthy could think of doing, and. Um, Caesar is writing in part for his own class, the senatorial class, the aristocracy, and then for the the equestrian class, which are the knights, the people just below who are on the same sort of scale of wealth, some of them even wealthier than some senators, very literate. But these are people who can afford to actually own the book. But beyond that, one suspects, and there's a fair bit of evidence for public readings. Mm -hmm. So again, not for the necessarily the the mass of the population, but for literate people, people who are interested in literature, interested in current events, interested in history, who would gather together to hear somebody read from one of these um, expensive scrolls. And if Caesar was, as seems most likely, releasing one book of the Gallic Wars in the winter after his campaigns, this is almost like the sort of latest dispatches from the front. Um, But you get to see, when you look at the, the, the Gallic Wars, there are Several fairly critical comments about the aristocracy. It's tribunes for who are young senators, senior officers who make mistakes, who get nervous when they hear rumours about how ferocious the Germans are, provoke this mutiny before he moves towards Ariovistus. The people who are consistently depicted as heroic, loyal, steadfast, occasionally a bit reckless, but you know, there's never anything that bad said about them, are the centurions. And you get the impression that Caesar is writing particularly for the class of people who produce these officers, the the local aristocrats, the local gentry, not just in Rome, but much more in the, the little cities, the little towns of Italy. So we might we might think of them as the county gentry. Yeah, in a sense. And he's writing, he's, he's playing to them. He's telling them the sort of things they would like. He doesn't name any individual soldiers in any of the battles he actually fights. There's is, there's one of a fairly junior rank who's named um, in uh, an incident where he wasn't present. But even you know, there's a famous case in the first landing in Britain when the, the soldiers are on the decks of the ships and they're panicking. They can see the Britons on the shoreline. They don't want to um, disembark, splash their way onto the shore and face this ferocious looking enemy. And the, the eagle bearer, the standard bearer of the 10th Legion, jumps off and runs forward shouting, you know, I'm, I know my duty, and if you don't want to be dishonoured by losing our standard, then you better follow me. That man's not named. Hmm. Um, even though he has this sort of, again, starring role, this little cameo where he does these things, only centurions get named. They're the people that matter and the class that they represent, who 
were also very significant politically because the way the voting is structured in the Roman assemblies, particularly for the election of consuls, it's the gentry whose individual vote counts for much more because they vote in smaller groups than the poorer people. So this is not just um, you know, a literate group. These are a politically very significant group that he's sort of um, playing up to all the time. But the odds are they're probably listening to it rather than actually reading it. That's a very interesting theory. Um, what? Uh, so you, you do hold to the I, – I, I thought it was a rather old-fashioned idea that uh, this goes out every year, uh, that he writes it during the winter and it goes back down to – it's, it's come back again, really, uh -huh. in the last, particularly Peter Wiseman's been pushing this. And to me, it makes more sense. In the first place, it some of the contradictions where um, individuals are depicted favorably in one case and then less favorably a few books later right. um, make far more sense if um, it's being published after each campaign. There was the old idea that he waited until all the wars were over and he's building up to the Civil War and then releases it in one go. But politically, that actually makes a lot less sense. You know, he wants to convince people in the first place when he's writing, the, when he's fighting the early campaigns, his initial command was only for five years. And he didn't know until um, 55 BC that it was going to be extended for another five years up to 10. So, you know, it makes more sense politically to start advertising what you're doing, justifying what you're doing, celebrating what you're doing right from the word go. And there is a lot of emphasis in Suetonius and elsewhere about how quickly he wrote, how active he was whilst traveling in a carriage. Most winters, he would go south of the Alps to hold court in Cisalpine Gaul, carry out the assizes. It makes a lot more sense if he's writing them then, if they're being released then, um, in the same way that he has very little time to release the three books of the Civil War if he waits until he's already won the, the campaign against Pompey and then got back to Rome after having the affair with Cleopatra and doing all that sort of thing. He doesn't have a lot of time then, whereas if he's released them one at a time, it makes a lot more sense. So to me, there's, there is no ancient evidence for them being released in one go, just the fact that they were collected as a book later on doesn't mean it was released that way. Mm -hmm. So I think a version that is probably pretty much identical to what we've got um, was released each year, with the exception. I mean, the other the thing that reinforced it, book six consists of a lot of this ethnographic stuff that um, you know is quite vague because the campaign then wasn't particularly interesting and he'd been under pressure. There might well be a delay when he spends one winter fighting in Gaul rather than going south of the Alps. Mm -hmm. There isn't time then to write one. Um, and you have to pad out what you do afterwards when you release too quickly. So, what um, ethnographic detail in book six leads us to the question of sources and, and use of evidence, uh, which is uh, always we assess uh, historians by that. Um, so, if we're to think of Caesar as a historian, uh, what are his sources and how does he use them? Um, those are all quite controversial questions. If you, if you excellent, use, excellent. Use those things are such a sort of esoteric subject. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> It's very hard to know because obviously we don't have the commentaries of any other Roman commander. So we don't know what the style but, was. But, we do, but we do know they were written, however. We do know they were written. There were lots of them out there. This is not something Caesar invents. But mm -hmm. how his compared to other people in length, in detail, in style is uncertain. A lot of the detail is very clearly eyewitness. This is what I did. This is what I saw, particularly, obviously, on the campaigns. Mm -hmm. What he doesn't do is pad it with the sort of um, dramatic descriptions you get of wild barbarians, of their strange dress, their strange practices, their fierce courage, their sort of savagery. Very little of that. 
in there. But enough, um, enough to have attracted the ire of certainly modern historians or nationalists of a previous generation. Yes, there's enough, but it's more from book six, where you do suddenly he digresses and says, this is, these are the Gauls, these are the Germans, and a little bit on these are the Britons. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have argued that that is all lifted from earlier ethnographic texts like Posidonius, the, the Greek who traveled about 40 odd years earlier um, in more in transalpine Gaul and that area uh, than the area Caesar is talking about. Problem is Posidonius doesn't survive. Um, He is quoted and referred to by people like the geographer Strabo, by Diodorus, by some of these others. There was the sort of the old 19th, early 20th century approach that tried to reconstruct the, the sort of the original source of our sources by putting together all the passages that somebody, either they specifically mention, come from so-and-so, or seem so similar in someone else's account that you can guess it's Poseidonius or whoever it might be. Um, the methods involved are questionable, to say the least, because it, it so much depends on your impression. And um, it's rather like you get the, you know, it's particularly true of, of New Testament scholars and the like, where they try and look at different traditions within a, a gospel account. And it comes down to particular phrases or the decision that, you know, author A would think about this sort of thing, would present that that way. Yeah. Much of this is so subjective that... Um, I, I, it's something I've grown. I never really found that convincing, but the more I have written myself, the less I find it convincing. Because frankly, I can read stuff I wrote even a few years ago, let alone ten years ago, and it could have been written by someone else. Yeah. Um, and I know frequently that when you're you're proofreading or something, you you realise that in one chapter you've used the same expression repeatedly or the same sort of word structure, because obviously that was the way your mind was ticking over mm-hmm. at the time. Completely different in the next one that you might have written a month or six months or a year later. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the same author. So um, there isn't actually anything in Caesar that he could not have seen or heard himself. And to see every ancient author as simply parrot fashion or um, snipping out bits from earlier authors and just pasting them in is um, it's stretching it a bit, particularly when he's not writing that sort of book. Um, So in the end, we face the, the big problem that we have just Caesar. For most of this uh-huh. so if you're starting to say well i don't really like this or this is a bit unflattering or this is i'm sure there are lots of misunderstandings i'm sure there are areas where he um he simplified perhaps because he couldn't be bothered to find out wasn't really interested wasn't his problem <laughs> or believed something uh it's interesting that suetonius tells us that asinius pollio who was one of caesar's commanders during the civil war and was with him at the very end of the gallic campaigns um, criticized the commentaries by saying that they were unreliable for the things Caesar didn't see, that he relied too too uh, readily on the first report he got, mm-hmm. and that was therefore um, more favorable to some of his subordinates than perhaps he should have been, and that he said Caesar probably planned to review them, but he got murdered, so he didn't have time to do it. Um, however, Asinius Pollio was involved in one of the big disasters in the Civil War that Caesar um, writes quite favorably about the commander who was responsible for this. Polio was one of the few survivors, so may well have had a rather more jaundiced view, you know. It's uh-huh. um, so, 
again, is he talking more about the civil wars than the Gallic wars? The passage is so brief. We have none of Pollio's writings, you know, the, his own history of this period, which would be a fascinating alternative view. And all the attempts to say, try and reconstruct it from fragments and mentions of him elsewhere, again, they, they really do struggle to convince because it's the, it's so little and you, you so much is padded out with, well, this is the sort of thing I'm sure he would have said. Right. Um, which, you know, I don't think we should base too much on that. Um we should uh, say a very brief word on style since uh, Shakespeare, since Caesar, I mean, he has that uh, place almost within Latin literature um, in the last 300 years. Uh, Caesar is the model uh, with which we come to Latin. Um, so speak to his style. It's interesting because it's, it's only one style of the competing right. rhetorical literary styles that are around at the time. You know, Cicero, praise the commentaries for their simplicity, their lack of adornment, but their sort of clarity and their pace. Um, now, Cicero was obviously one of the more florid speakers where his stuff would be embellished. If he wrote something, it would be far more dramatic, far more um, you know, heights and depths and excitement, completely different. Now, obviously, Ciceronian Latin has been very influential as well, but... Um, you obviously have to add the, the sort of caveat to that, that Cicero wrote that particular comment on Caesar's commentaries during Julius Caesar's dictatorship. Mm-hmm. So, you know, was he really going to say, yeah, I think this is awful. Um, can't stand it. Um, on the other hand, he probably could have said that under Caesar's dictatorship because we know of both Cicero and, and uh, Brutus writing books praising Caesar's opponent Cato. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, this is not a, um, a repressive regime in that respect. Um there's a nice quote that, of Caesar that's preserved by Suetonius that a good orator and a good author should avoid a complicated word as the, the helmsman of a ship avoids a reef. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a fashion, you've only got to read Sallust and some of the others around, for being as, as sort of archaic and as complicated as you could be to impress, to show just how clever you were. It's, it's, it's a bit like some academic writing these days where there's almost a suspicion if it's easy to read. Yeah. Uh, um, that, you know, they, well, the argument can't be very good then. You know, make it sound complicated. But there were those competing styles. There were, you know, Cicero's rhetoric was quite restrained by comparison with the Asiatic style of people like Mark Antony. Um, but Caesar is very simple. Um, but also that may be because this is, these are commentaries. Commentaries were supposed to be material for historians rather than history itself. On the other hand, Cicero's comment is, well, you know, any historian of sense is just going to steal well clear of this because you can't write better than that. Yeah, in fact, um, Cicero has a lovely, there's a lovely quote in that passage you've been referring to. There is nothing better in the writing of history than clear and distinguished brevity. Um, uh, given that brevity is something I always struggle to attain, particularly <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, admiring. But... Let alone clear and distinguished. I, I like the... Well, uh, that, but it, it's that, I mean, the, the, you have... Uh, Caesar is very much the sort of person who should be writing history to uh, a Greek or Roman mind. You know, it should be the statesman, the experienced politician, the experienced general. They wouldn't think too much of the professional historian of today who hasn't done anything, yeah, that, just studied history. That's uh, that gets us to the the question is, I mean, he is the person that should be a historian. Then uh, we don't think of him as a historian, but in the ancient world, he was the perfect person to be a historian. Yes, he was. But then, um, you know, you think he managed to write this and he wrote an incredible amount of other stuff. Um, you know, his textbook on grammar or all this sort of thing, his poetry that's been lost. Um, 
it's quite humbling when you do a biography of someone like Caesar, the amount they manage to pack into their life and the amount they actually do. Um, perhaps that's my instinctive laziness, but um, he's, yes, he is. He's very much there. He's, these, these are the people who should write history, or at the very least, if they don't have the time, it's somebody who stays close to them and watches them. Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, Pompey, who was the greatest general of Rome until Caesar comes along and becomes his rival, didn't write. He didn't. He wasn't a good orator. He had never had a formal rhetorical training. He didn't write anything. So he paid historians to accompany him. And that's, there's a tradition of that. Alexander the Great did the same. Mm-hmm. Hannibal did the same. Um, Caesar is different because he, he, he epitomizes how particularly the Romans think it should be done. He's the man who goes out and acts, and then he writes about it as well. And and certainly Caesar has had, I think it's safe to say that, I mean, just looking at the Roman historians that followed after him, um, he had a tremendous influence on subsequent historians. Yes, although, again, it would be lovely to have some of the commentaries written by later generals, particularly emperors. Um, The emperor Trajan, whose Trajan's column there in Rome has all these pictures of his campaigns in Dacia, modern-day Romania, um, only one sentence of his commentary survives, which is, is very hard to judge them from. You suspect it's, but again, the, you have to remember, as 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 today, there are competing traditions. So Tacitus is far less influenced by Caesar than he is with by somebody like Sallust. Um, but we need to remember all the time we have only tiny, tiny fraction, naught point naught naught something percent of the literature that once existed. So much has been lost that we judge it. We, we hope that we have many of the great works, but we can't really judge what mainstream history writing was like in any subsequent period because it, it's 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 nearly all lost, as with most other literature from the ancient world. So, how would you then rank uh, Caesar as a historian? I think, uh, by the standards of the ancient world, um, it is wonderful when you're writing about something and you have Caesar as a source, because the the ancient historian's problem is always sources, and you know you get the Caesar, you get the Thucydides, you get Polybius, somebody who um, witnessed some of what they write about or all of it, and um, writes just appears to be more competent, more detailed than so much of the other stuff out there that's written centuries later. Um, Again, he's fortunate, both in his reputation as a general and as a writer, in that we don't have the counter arguments. We don't have um, somebody saying, well, actually, it didn't happen that way. Um, and nor do we have somebody criticizing his decisions in detail as a general. But the, again, the nice thing about working with Caesar is that there have been all sorts of ideas, many theses written over the centuries criticizing Caesar. Um, you know, if you've got the strange situation where Napoleon in exile dictated this criticism of the Gallic campaigns. Um, and basically it was sort of, I could have won it faster. And he accused Caesar of lying on the scale that, that he had routinely done in his um, imperial bulletins. Um, so you get, the, you know, people are drawn to this, but the material is there to criticize Caesar within his own text. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it is it is propaganda, but it's very clever propaganda because he includes enough to make you feel that actually this is all quite fair, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, is quite seductive in one way. But nevertheless, it means that you do have have some sense. And because he wasn't writing in a vacuum, I mean, he had commanders like Quintus Cicero and others who were routinely writing back to Rome. He couldn't really get away with too much. So that restriction allows you to feel more comfortable with yourself as a historian in, in using him and relying on him. Because, again, you do come back to the problem. If you don't do that, 
there isn't anything to replace it with. Well, we certainly hope this conversation uh, makes people turn to Caesar, perhaps uh, for the first time or again, uh, because he's. I, I had a great time um, reading him uh, for the second or third time. And um, but before we uh, stop, Adrian, uh, we should say you, it's very funny that you should. Uh, it's it's a little. You, you refer to yourself as lazy, or a, a pr- propensity for it, given that you put out a book a year, or at least two books a year. Um, it's uh, it's a terrible thing to say about yourself. Um, what's the most recent thing that's come off of your sort of historical side of your brain? Um, I've got a book called Pax Romana that's due for release in August, um, and that looks at the broader question of. Well, first of all, why the Romans conquered the empire, but then really was there a Roman peace and what did it mean? Mm-hmm. Um, because the empires aren't very fashionable these days. So they tend to get a lot of criticism. And the assumption is with a lot of scholars that, well, it wasn't really that peaceful. It's just imperial propaganda. Um, so whilst there's an element of truth in that, actually, when you look very closely at the archaeology and the history, the vast bulk of the Roman Empire enjoys long periods of peace of a sort that much many of those countries have never had before and have rarely have ever had since. Um, so it's that broader question. Then within that, trying to look at does, how does life change when the Romans arrive? How do the Romans govern the empire? You know, what do governors do? How much and how little they do? How much is decided locally? So that's that's been the theme of that one. And. Uh... For leisure, most people read novels. You write them. Uh, you've been, you've got six novels set in the Napoleonic uh, Wars, uh, and you told me uh, before we began recording that you've just written another set in ancient Rome. Is that is that right? Yes, this has only just gone into my editor yesterday or the day before. <laughs> um, How what? Uh, why did you start writing novels? Um, I've always quite liked historical fiction, but there wasn't a lot out there that I enjoyed. Um, and it's just one of those things, you, you, both with the history and with the fiction, you write things that really you like to sit down and read yourself. It's just they're not there yet. Yeah. Well, there's not enough of them. Um, so that was part of it. And it was nice to go and write about another period. Um, I've had a long fascination with, with, with that era and the Peninsular War in particular, but the Napoleonic period in general, um, because you have a lot of sources then of the sort that we'd love to have for the Romans and don't exist. Yeah, it must be uh, very... All the personal accounts, the low-level stuff. Yeah, it must be delightful to turn from ancient history to Napoleonic history and feel yeah, that it's you're, you're swimming in sources. I know. Suddenly there's, you know, your people are talking about how they set up camp, how they ate, what things smelt like, what things looked like, the day-to-day yeah. worries that you get glimpses of um, in some of the, the letters preserved on papyrus and writing tablets, but it's only ever glimpses. Yeah, I, and suddenly I, there's loads of eyewitnesses doing all this stuff and writing yeah. about it. I remember when I turned to 18th century history uh, and people were saying, oh, the, you can't really, there's really no sources for, say, 18th century Virginia. And I'm, are you kidding me? Have you have you tried yeah. studying Charlemagne? I mean, it's... Uh, no, that's the thing. It, it's it's um, And you do you talk to the prehistorians, poor things, and they, yeah. you know, they try to expound from a piece of flint or something about society <laughs> and this or that and, and you know good luck to them but yeah. it's it's um so it's 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 nice in some ways in that if you're reading ancient history you can even as an undergraduate you can start to read nearly all the sources for one topic yeah and that's that's nice you get to the sort of cold face of history quicker yeah um but the big restriction is then it's so frustrating there's so many things you don't know um and writing a novel about the roman period made me realize that how many things i've never thought about was because that, you're 
actors have to do and eat things and get up in the morning and put their clothes on and this sort of thing. And um, the little stuff that doesn't tend to bother you too much when you're writing about the big events. Was that difficult for you to overcome the historian side of your brain as you're trying to as you're making you're really making things up? Yeah. I mean, I'm glad I, I wrote the, the six Napoleonic ones first because I've, I, I think writing of all sorts, whether nonfiction or fiction, is a craft you need to learn by doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope each book I write is better stylistically than the one before. Um, so it's good to have learned a little bit anyway about storytelling um, that I think has made my nonfiction writing better as well. Because you start to think about the reader far more and be aware this is a conversation and you need to sort of lead them on rather than just throw facts at them. Um, But it is difficult. One of the reasons I've chosen the novels are set. The first one begins in AD 98 and it draws inspiration from the Vindlander tablets, these wooden writing tablets found to the south of what would become Hadrian's Wall a generation later in a fort there. And they talk about the sort of day-to-day life of the commander and his wife and family and bits and bobs of military administration. In this frontier area, um, at the very end of the first century AD, in northern Britain, the sort of fringes of the empire. So you get that, but otherwise there are almost no historical sources for what's happening in Britain for the next 20 years. So there's quite a lot of archaeology, but that's difficult to date as precisely as that. And then these little fragments that show these ordinary people are living their lives there and the sort of things they're doing, sort of things they're, you know, the social life. One of them famously is a birthday invitation to a party from the the wife of one commander to the wife of another commander. Um, And it was just taking some of those and then trying from what we know about the Roman army, what we know about the Roman world, what we know about the Iron Age peoples to try and put together a story that to my mind is a sort of western but set in the end of the first century ad in britain <laughs> well that sounds great and look i really look forward to reading it um i've become addicted to your napoleonic war novels and i'm um, really sorry uh, i'm at the end of the six and i'm waiting for the next one i hope that uh, is not too long in, in coming um, one day all i can say because I, i'm desperate to write <laughs> <laughs> well uh adrian goldsworthy uh thank you so much for joining us many thanks For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leimbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.